Welcome to The Hidden World of Women, a podcast brought to you by Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. My name is Emma and I'll be your host for today's episode. Tomorrow is International Women's Day and obviously this is a podcast for women by women, so I couldn't let International Women's Day go by without actually having an episode dedicated to International Women's Day. So it was trying to work out who could I talk to for International Women's Day and then I received an email from a colleague at the Centre for Women's Safety and Wellbeing and I thought, oh, awesome, I can talk to her. And then turns out she's going to go visit a family member and she can't. So she dobbed in um, her colleague, Jade Robinson Clancy, who is, I'm assured, an absolutely fantastic woman. She's a communication and engagement officer at the Centre for Women's Safety and Wellbeing. She, um, outside of her work there, she is in love with her two American staffies, Honey and Tank. And so, obviously, she's an amazing person because she's a dog person. So, thank you so much for joining me today, Jade. Thank you so much for having me, Emma. I'm very glad that my colleague dobbed me in. It's um, yeah, <laughs> nice to be here with you and having this conversation. Yeah, fab. Uh, so, we're in 2022 and we're, cele- we're still celebrating International Women's Day. So... Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me why it's still relevant. Is it still relevant? Why is it still relevant in 2022 that we're still celebrating something that was started over a century ago? Yeah, it's a really good question and you actually got me thinking about it and reflecting about it um, just before the day, which is fantastic. I guess when you work in the sector like we do, you you see it every year, we know about it, we talk about it and maybe take for granted um, where it's come from or or how important it still is for that messaging to get out there to the the wider community. Um, So you're absolutely right. It it did start at the beginning of the 20th century and I think in America um, during the labour sort of movement, during that suffragette sort of movement, trying to get women's rights, Um, And it actually, it was actually, I I learnt, tied to a bit of a socialist communist holiday up until Mm. the 60s, 70s, which is when um, the United Nations began officially taking over the day and celebrating the day um, from 1975. And also around that time, we had second wave feminists, so we had a lot of um, activism happening around women's um, equal pay, equal economic opportunity, equal legal rights, reproductive rights, childcare and the prevention of violence against women. So I guess it got that second wave and momentum and mm. it's carried on um, to today. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of questions within your question. Yeah, well, so yes. I think... <laughs> I'll have to reflect. Um, uh, well, so while I you're think... reflecting, um, so it's my, all the information that I have is it's 1909 was the first National Women's Day. Yes. And you're yes. correct, it was held on the, February the 28th in America. Um, and then different places around the world started celebrating it on the last Sunday of February. In That sort of started yes. in 1913. Um, and in 1910, there was a conference in Germany around the women's rights and the suffragettes. Yes, yes. And I think it was the um, the March 8th got uh, proclaimed as that official UN holiday for women's rights and world peace. So, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. 
Mm. Um, quite an interesting journey. So why it's relevant now, I guess we still are as a society working towards gender equality in a number of different areas. Actually talking about gender equality is such a huge wide-ranging topic. We, yeah. You know, we could talk for hours and hours. We really so could. I guess We're going to try hard the... not to, but we really could. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so that's one of the reasons. And also um, violence against women. So, you know, we're still um, working towards eliminating gender-based violence, violence against women, community awareness around the issue. So I, I believe definitely it's still such a relevant day today in 2022. What would you say to people that say that women have achieved equality? And, you know, there is, it is about you know, regardless of your gender, that job is paid that amount of money and so that is equality. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I was looking at some of the community attitudes stats that came out mm. from Anne Rose in the last 12 months. And one of the points was, I don't have it in front of me right now, but we'll probably get to it, um, that there are community members who think there can be an exaggeration around gender equality and we don't need to be talking about it anymore, but we may have achieved it. And I think... I also, I think I mentioned it um, to you, I saw some posts by professional women, you know, in high leadership positions, CEOs, Mm -hmm. talking about achieving that um, through their own merit and not because of their gender, which, which of course, congratulate them on their achievements. But we definitely know um, that there's still a huge gender pay gap that yeah. women in this country and WA actually has the highest gap. Yes, um, which is 23%, I believe, in WA and the lowest in the country, I believe, is 11%. Yes, and I think maybe the um, in WA, yeah, you're right, the 20, did you say 23%? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and also um, CEOs, you know, women make up, of the workforce, but only 20% in CEO positions. Yeah, so Um, one of the things that I told you, I'd been listening to a um, UK comedian, Sandy Toxvig, and um, she was being interviewed by Victoria Corrin Mitchell. So I was listening to that recently and um, on it, they were talking about a stat that was actually from Australia that uh, was from 2017, which I know 2017, it's five years ago, but it says fewer women run top Australian companies than men named Peter or John or David. So when you're looking at the top, you know, your CEOs and chairs of ASX 200 com- um, companies, there are 32 CEOs or chairs called John, 32 called Peter, 21 named David and 19 women altogether. That's it. Yeah. 19 women and yet you've got, all, well, you know, 150% of that called John this isn't 19 women called Emma this is 19 women compared to 32 men called John like we there's not yeah like you say we're just so far away from the stats of having equality as women who are running these companies there's definitely that disparity between genders when you are looking at the number of people who are in those roles so when I hear women say don't call me a female CEO because I'm not, I didn't get here yes. because of my gender. I got here because of my skills. You did get there because of your skills, but you know what? 
the statistics tell us it is a damn sight harder for you to get there because of your gender. So it should be celebrated because you had so many extra barriers to overcome in order to be there and you've done it. So celebrate the fact that there are female CEOs out there and and I think I shared with you as well, when I first uh, became a CEO, I was really bad at it. Like I, I really sucked. <laughs> so, and, you know, it's going back, I was 2010, I became a CEO. And congratulations. I'll congratulate you now for that achievement, Emma. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there was... There was no other female CEOs, well, there were, you know, but few female CEOs around for me to be able to model myself on or for me who had the time and capacity to take on mentors and things like that. So the people who I had to reach out to were men. And when you model yourself on a man, it doesn't work because I'm not a man. So it doesn't, there's, yeah, there's just that disconnect there. So I was bad at it because it I was lacking authenticity. To say when we can celebrate that there are other female CEOs, and when we can, when we see people go, female CEO at this organisation, we can go fantastic. Maybe I can reach out to her and we can have a conversation. Can we support each other, or can I offer her assistance because I've been doing this for twelve years, or can she maybe suggest something because she's coming in with fresh eyes? So yes, you know, how can we build each other up? Yes, no, that's a really good point, and I actually um. I guess that kind of comes, that kind of ties into the topic around, I guess, perception of women's roles Mm. in society as well, the way Mm. that we see that before gender equality, the way that we see the two genders. Um, But before I touch on that, because you did ask me about why 2022, I had a couple of other um, points and one was, um, I don't know if you know this one, that on average women spend nearly 32 hours a week on household labour and caring for children compared with nearly 19 hours by men. So I don't think we could continue our our, um, lively chat about the leadership without acknowledging that domestic um, factor that we know is still there, even though we're not, you know, in a society like 60, 70 years ago, it's still there. And I'm sure um, you, like me, have read in a lot of, probably more um, contemporary media, I'd say the last two years, about that mental load, the mental load that women carry, even if they are, and I mean, quote, unquote, successful. So, you know, running, uh, having a successful career and doing all these things that they want to do, there still is that factor of the, the mental load, whether it's rearing children or running the household, caring for sick mm-hmm. parents or elderly parents or or caring for um others in the community or working in caring roles um Mm. does that make sense most definitely you know so I yeah I work as a CEO I work full-time and my husband works part-time from home he has recently started a role that he works part-time outside of the home as well but for our youngest child is nine so for eight and a half of her nine years he's been working from home um, and has a lot of flexibility around that despite the fact that he is the first contact person on our children's school register, if our children get injured or are unwell or what, I am still the person who they call. So because, yes. you know, because we call mum when kids are sick because dads are working and we don't want to interrupt them. Yes, yes, yes. So, and it's just, yeah, he's, his name is first. It says call him first and yet they still call me. 
And it, it's exactly what you were just saying, that we do have this additional load that, you know, I have to make sure... When my husband goes to work, his phone goes in a locker and he goes to work. I have to make sure that my mobile's on because if the kids, if the kids school need me, then I need to be contactable. It doesn't matter if I'm meeting with government ministers, doesn't matter if I've got a team meeting it. I need to be contactable in case my kids need me. And don't get me wrong, I want to be contactable if my kids need me. So 100%, I have no issue with that. I have issue with the fact that that's what's expected. Yes, and I definitely hear you. I've seen that in meetings where women are juggling that role, something's going on and they're focusing and they're they're focused on their work, but they've also got that other um, potential crises or issue in the background that they have to monitor. Um, Yeah, and I, I think it is a lot to juggle and... I guess I'm probably, um, I'm Gen Y, which, you know, I don't say proudly because sometimes I feel embarrassed (laughs) saying that. (laughs) I like being Gen Y, but I mean, we are a generation that people talk about being sold, having it all, which it's great. There are more opportunities and things have changed in a number of different areas. How much, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a debate and we'd have to look at it individually. Um, But the thing is that, there's still that that juggle of responsibilities and that mental load and different, I guess, expectations and pressures for women in society. Um, there's even a lot, I don't know if you've read also about, you know, even motherhood, that when women now, oh, I don't have the stat on me, that would have been a great stat, but um, a lot more women are choosing not to have children, the rhetoric they can be met with from the community for choosing not to. There still is that sort of social standard that women are nurturing or women are, are born to be mothers. And if you don't choose that, and I'm not saying from everybody because obviously yeah. we're living in a liberally minded society, but if you choose that path, you will be met with perhaps some comments at a barbecue or comments by your friend's mum, whereas perhaps a male wouldn't even have to front up and explain that choice. Does that make sense? Well, and it goes the other way as well. I think that people have got, everybody's got an opinion over whether or not you've got children. So I had my children was considered to be relatively young. I wasn't that young. I was 23 when I had my first child and, you know, I was married and and I chose to, it was all I wanted to be was to be a mum. And that's, that's not okay, according to society, that all I want to be is a mum because that's, you know, being a mum isn't held with enough esteem. Um, so, you know, if I was just going to become a mum, well, then you're wasting your potential, that kind of thing. So yes. the, responses when, the responses when I was getting married quite young and the response when I had babies quite young was around, why are you having a baby now? You've got to get your career sorted. Once you've got your career sorted then you can go on and then you can have a baby. And then, you, like you say, you have women who choose not to have children for whatever reason they're not having children and people have got an opinion about that as well. And as yes. you say, nobody goes... like I don't see men hanging out at a barbecue going, hey, Steve, when are you going to start popping out these babies? You're like, you've been married for four <laughs> months now. What's going on here? So... <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is and... Um, I think that's the other thing you mentioned before about supporting one another. I guess gender equality at its heart is about women and men having the choice to be who they want to be and do what they want to do and have access, I guess, to that life that they choose to have as well. So we... I guess as much as we progress forward, it doesn't mean that we judge, you know, having a child young or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, How... 
and I know that we're going off script, so it's okay for you. And it's totally yes, okay if you don't have that. That would happen but that's fine. I don't think you're likely to have, if you do have the answer to this, it'll be amazing. But there's this idea that, you know, women have to parent as though they don't work, work as though they don't parent. They have to be everything to everyone. Like you say, caring for their parents as well as caring for their children, volunteering in community, being there for everything. Like, you know, if mums aren't there at sports carnivals, it's noticed. If dads aren't there at sports carnivals, oh, well, obviously he's got to work. So yeah, how do we, how do we drop some of this mental load? How do we share that mental load? How do we make it so that women don't have all of the plates spinning and they can share some of those spinning plates? That would probably tie into the kind of work of the centre because I guess gender equality underpins all the um, the areas that we focus on, so mm. sexual violence, um, family and domestic violence and women's community health centres, as you know. So, yeah, I think to achieve gender equality, it's really about, well, it's at the individual level, so how we are talking now about, you know, our individual day-to-day lives and attitudes, but it's also that higher-level structural and systemic barriers to equality that must be removed. So the social norms that we're talking about, attitudes and behaviours that perpetuate inequality, um, and gender stereotypes must be addressed. So gender equity, as you probably know, is the process to achieve gender equality. So gender equity recognises intersecting issues and barriers to equality and implements strategies to address these. So I don't know if that makes sense. That sounds kind of higher level, but there's a number of things that have to start to change and we are seeing them in this country um there's been a lot that's happened in the last month let alone last six months that i thought about and bought for this podcast so like the mandatory consent education in every school in australia that's something that's a huge win for gender equality you know to begin to address those cultural issues that young men and young women come up against and face during that time uh, so just to, I'm just going to take it back a step. So the way yeah. that I see the difference between equity and equality is, mm-hmm. so we work towards um, equity and what yes. equity is, is it recognises that everybody has individual differences and individual needs. So in order for people yes. to achieve the same outcome, they often need different supports in order to get there. So when we're looking, yes. when we're looking at equality, when we're looking at equity, if you imagine that you've got three people who are trying to see over a fence. Now, one person, yes. let's call him Gary, one person is six foot six and he can see over that six foot fence just fine. He doesn't need any extra supports. Then you've yes. got Mary who's, you know, she's five foot eight and she just needs one little step to be able to see over that. Then you've got Alice who's four foot two and she needs a step ladder. You know, so that's the difference between equity and equality is just going, well, everybody gets the same little step that Mary had because we've all got the same thing and it's not my fault if you can't see over that fence because I've given everybody the same thing. So, and I guess what, what I'm hearing from you is that when we're looking at things like the mandatory consent um, education, when we're looking at things like opening conversations about social norms, what we're doing is we're adding extra extra blocks onto those steps for the people who need it to be able to lift them up over that fence. 
Yes, definitely. And I think the other part of that, because, yeah, when we talk about these topics, they are quite complex, is, yeah, that intersectionality. So we even know with feminism there's an intersectionality. So if we're looking at the opportunities for called or First Nations women or women with a disability or younger women we or LGBTIQA plus communities, we know that in a sense these communities can be vulnerable cohorts already. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're absolutely right. We need to look at it from a, a different lens or frame it differently for different people and different groups of people for them to achieve equality yeah, and or equity. It's tricky because uh, so I I'm a feminist and I'm you know yes, I'm, me too that's it I'm seeing it from the rooftops and that doesn't mean I hate men I you know there are some who I really quite like <laughs> so you know um, feminism doesn't mean man hater I think one of the one of the topics that people struggle with one of the topics women struggle with is hearing the concept that all women are disadvantaged. By our gender, yes. we're disadvantaged. But then, as you say, there are other contributing factors that add to that disadvantage. So women from cowed backgrounds, LGBTQIA+, um, in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women, so all the women who you, who you identified, they have added layers of complexity that increase that risk of disadvantage. Well, it increases that disadvantage. That can be difficult for women to hear. I, th- I think so. And I think if we could come back to that point, because I guess going back to the International Women's Day, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Yeah, no, that's kind just, of what we're here to we'll, talk about. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, circle, we'll circle back because I think we're both passionate and we're just getting straight into the, the nitty gritty. But there are a few, a few key facts and stats, I think. So this year, for people that are listening, they probably see over their socials that there's two International Women's Day. So there's actually the Break the Bias, which is internationalwomensday.com, and that is actually ran in Australia by some corporate organisation. We're actually not quite sure who, and it's um, it's de- it's definitely definitely sort of got that corporate professional backing, and lots of people do. Um, follow that or celebrate that day, use their comms and messaging, break the bias, hold their events in um, alignment with that with that particular International Women's Day branding. But we at the Centre and a number of other organisations have continued on following the official UN Women's theme. So the, the day, and you can look that up on the UN Women's um, site and it will give you lots of information about the work that they do and the theme of the year. So the theme this year is um, in, it's changing climate, equality today for a sustainable tomorrow, which is quite, you know, a fitting subject considering the environment and what's going on around us in Australia and around the world at the moment. And we are actually holding an event online virtually interviewing Senator Dorinda Cox about this issue, so about gender equality and the changing climate, which isn't something I think within our sector, Emma, we necessarily think about or associate, you know, with our work or at the core of gender equality so we're really excited to be bringing that as an event to actually educate and inform um people within the sector why it is important for us to learn and know about that um she is going to be talking about her political work you know her fantastic um 
focuses on a number of different areas, but also um, going back to what we're talking about, she's going to talk about the launch of the inquiry into missing and murdered First Nations women, um, which is a landmark um, inquiry. But the reason I wanted to share that is because UN Women um, released a few key statistics, which I think will um, support and sum up what we were talking about in regards to gender equality being important today. So nearly 60% of women around the world work in the informal economy, earning less, saving less, and are at greater risk of falling into poverty. Women earn 23% less than men globally. Women occupy only 24% of parliamentary seats worldwide. One in three women have experienced physical or sexual violence and 200 million women and girls have suffered female genital mutilation. Specifically into climate, around 21.5 million people worldwide are displaced every year by climate change-related events, and of these, 80% are women, which I was quite surprised mm. to learn about. Um, it's estimated that at least 1.2 billion people could be displaced by climate-related events by 2050, which really isn't it's too not that long, long away. And I was, I was actually thinking how old I'll be at, at that time. Um, women and children are 14 times more likely than men to die or be injured from a natural disaster. And more than 70% of people who died in the 2004 Asian tsunami were women. And climate, which I also found very fascinating, I, I hadn't um, heard of that stat for this UN Women's theme this year, Climate disasters have also been shown to increase gender-based violence, including sexual harassment and violence, domestic violence, child marriage, sex sexual exploitation of children and human trafficking. So I just wanted to share about that theme this year mm -hmm. because it's very powerful and very important and I think really does answer what we were talking about. Yeah, and I guess so. some of those things obviously we we're aware of um yes and you know things like women are more likely to be in community service type roles they're more likely to be in professions where they are lower paying and lower paid work means less superannuation so that impacts yes. their retirement you know when women take time out to have babies that not only impacts their superannuation it impacts their career trajectory and um you know so all of those things that go around actual income earning but to hear the stats on things like the percentage of women to be impacted by natural disasters, that I hadn't heard that before. So um, I guess when I read Changing Climates, I didn't actually think they meant climate as in the weather. You know, like, I actually thought that originally too, Emma, I have yeah. to say a few months back. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was thinking, oh, yeah, changing the climate of like community climates type thing and the way we talk about these things. So, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but why are more women dying in natural disasters than men? I don't have the answer to that, but I have had some conversations with colleagues. Um, I'm obviously going to learn a lot from Senator yeah. Dorinda Cox on Tuesday, so I look forward to learning along with the rest of the sector. But I think it is the fact, um, the reason women and girls are impacted is because of, I, I believe, um, the labour and the jobs and the communities that they're involved in. So community, whether it's agricultural, 
um, or what have you. But also, I can't answer that specific question, Emma, but I know another big part of it is that after a natural disaster, as I said um, in that stat, that um, gender-based violence can increase. Mm. So after there's been a disaster, the impact on women and girls in that community can be quite substantial. And I've even heard colleagues talk about um, there's been a lot of research and reports come out of Hurricane Katrina in America Mm. all those years ago the impact of women and girls there. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I guess it, it sheds a light on why it is important and why we need to delve, deep dive more into it. Yeah, and look, I guess that that gender-based violence, we've obviously seen that. It's I'm not sure if you can call what we're going through with COVID a natural disaster at the moment. I do try and shy away from speaking of it, but I know that we have seen the incidence of you know, um, gender-based violence and unplanned pregnancies increase. Um, we've seen the number of, you know, at the moment we're seeing people who are impacted because they can't access counselling because we've moved to telehealth and people can't, you know, they don't have private places in their house to be able to have those sessions with the FDV perpetrator in the house with them. So, you know, I guess we're, we're actually living through that at the moment. Yes. Yes, we're seeing the, the impact significantly on women and girls mm. in this um worldwide pandemic no you're absolutely right that's a really good example and another reason why gender equality is so important Mm, yeah definitely um so i I mean i guess for me that's why it's relevant now Mm. you know the fact that yes we may have we've got the vote and there's no jobs that are specifically for men um but we still all of these things that we've been talking about these are still happening so there's still there's still steps ahead of us. There definitely is. Um, and I don't know about you, but I love being in a sector and listening to women, you know, who have been around for 30, 40 years fighting these fights. And, you know, they, a lot has, well, I shouldn't say a lot, some things have changed, but when you hear anecdotally from them, there's still a number of big things that, need to change or gain momentum and actually just to put that in context context again i had some key figures um i guess around some of the issues particularly in australia because that was a un women's statistics that i ran through Mm -hmm. but we talked about gent like um violence against women being one of the key reasons these were some um, stats from our watch, who's one of, it's a, like a leading body around preventing violence against women and children in Australia. You would know mm-hmm. them. And I yeah, recommend everyone to go on their site. They've got fantastic resources if you want to learn more. Um, but some key figures that are always powerful to share is that one in six women in Australia have experienced physical violence or sexual violence by a current partner or previous partner since the age of 15. One in four women in Australia have experienced emotional abuse by a current or previous partner since the age of 15. On average, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. Almost 10 women a day are hospitalised for assault injuries perpetrated by a spouse or domestic partner. And women are nearly three times more likely than men to experience violence from an intimate partner. So these are really sobering statistics. And the other one, 
which you would be aware of, Emma, but is important to note again around that intersectionality is that Indigenous women are 32 times more likely to be impacted by FDV. So mm. it, it's a big difference. Mm. Um, the impacts, which, which is always good to share, is that based on a 2015 analysis, violence against women in Australia is costing $21.7 billion each year. And it's the domestic and family violence is a leading driver of homelessness for women. So that's another thing. And you probably hear about yeah. that too. Women experiencing homelessness, mm. older women experiencing homelessness and the effects. Mm. And this is, I guess, as a off the top of my head type thought, I was in a, um, it was the launch of a women's health policy. And there was an Indigenous, Indigenous woman who gave the welcome to country and then she gave an address. And one of the things that she spoke about was about the increased incidence of family and domestic violence in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families. Uh But one of the things that she said was really interesting. And the thing is, it's a really interesting topic for discussion, except that we're both white women. So I don't feel like we can have a topic (laughs) discussion around this. But I'm going to raise it anyway. Um, So one of the things she said is that she's not sure whether or not the incidence of family and domestic violence is actually that much higher in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families. What she wonders is, is there much more underreporting in white families than there are in Indigenous families? She said because what she, what she has found in her work is that family and domestic violence often happens behind closed doors in white families and yet her words, and I'm paraphrasing, she basically said, Indigenous families, that happens out on the street and there's no shame mm-hmm. with that. They will, they'll have that fight out on the street so that everybody sees it, which means it's higher reported. And so mm-hmm. she asked the question, are we actually seeing a higher rate with those Indigenous families or is it that we're seeing... So there's obviously underreporting regardless, but is the rate of underreporting higher in non-Indigenous families than it is in Indigenous families? The thing is, we're never going to know the answer to that, but I just thought it was an interesting... I couldn't comment on that. I think we know with... Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, there's so many interesting conversations we can have on all of these topics in all all parts of the community, which I love as well. Um, you know, um, I'm going to a WA Women's Hall of Fame event tonight and I really look forward to meeting and seeing different women there and their perspectives on gender yeah. equality. But I think with the family, domestic and sexual violence, there's always um, discussion around the reporting, but and I, I can't comment on that, as I said, but I do know the way that the centre talks about the issue of um, violence in First Nations communities is that it's very different, the fact that, you know, colonisation, dispossession of land, the removal of children, Mm. the intergenerational trauma, these are all huge factors that need to be considered when Mm. planning for programs or responding to. I feel like there's a lot of call to action um, for this space to be led by Aboriginal communities um, themselves. So that that woman, you know, um, her experience, I think the biggest thing is that as a society we're listening to to Aboriginal people's voices in this space. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, most definitely. And like I said, we can't, I don't think that we can have a conversation about it. It just, I guess, popped into my head as when she said it, thinking, well, that's a really interesting perspective on that. Uh, And... You know, like I said, I, we know that the underreporting is ridiculously high. So the statistics that you shared 
we know that those actually aren't close to portraying the actual picture picture yes yes no definitely um yes i just wanted to let you know emma about the wigayani youth and gani report i do hope that i pronounced that properly and i, I apologize if i didn't <laughs> yeah. um it's a very important um report because the federal government has just announced 2.8 million in funding and a national summit for First Nations women and girls, and it's the first of its kind in Australia. This definitely was recently, um, in the last few months, it was in our newsletter, Mm -hmm. Um, and the biggest win out of that is that female Indigenous leaders feel that their voices have largely been ignored Mm -hmm. in the planning or in the, um, the mainstream space, so this is an opportunity for them to talk to their unique communities' experiences, whether that be their issues of violence or the removal of children, incarceration, the opportunity to have their voices heard. Yeah, and it just reminded me, so my eldest is studying, um, she's studying history and she's just done a paper on sort of something around this and that's looking at the fact that history is written by white people. So when we're looking at, you know, what happened with the colonisation of Australia, it's written from that perspective and Indigenous people's voices aren't heard. Their stories haven't been heard through that. And if we're not allowing space for those voices to be heard, then we can't actually take that step towards reconciliation. And this feels like that same, I guess, those same kind of ideas that we need to be hearing people's stories, we need to be hearing their voices and allowing people to be an expert in their own space so that we can start moving forward and seeing what we can do towards positive change. Yes, definitely. And I I hear you. I feel like there's a lot more of that rhetoric in the media or Mm. in conversations in other spaces. I like to follow the arts, for example, and there's a lot more around Indigenous storytelling and, um, you know, different communities being able to publish their works and use their voices rather than um, other people writing about them, you know? So I, I'm excited to see, yeah, that point and what's going to come from it. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. Like we, we're working on a reconciliation action plan at the moment and I don't want it to be where you just, oh, look, we'll just celebrate NAIDOC week and then we can tick off that we've done something. You know, it has to actually yes. be meaningful. So how do we make this meaningful? And I feel like, yep. you know, that uh, there is no way I'm going to try and pronounce what you've just pronounced, but it's towards yeah. actually making meaningful change rather than it just being about being seen to be doing something. Yes, and listening. And I think that's at the heart of our conversation, isn't it? Really listening to women, different groups of women. It's 2022. We really need to be listening. Yeah. yeah. So it is 2022 and, you know, we spoke about the fact that the first National Women's Day was held in 1909. So I should be able to do the maths on this. What's that, 111, 112 years later? No, it's 113 years later. I can do the maths on this, honest. (laughs) What year are we in again? (laughs) Well done. Oh, dear, it's terrible. I guess we're still seeing examples in the media every day of why International Women's Day is relevant. Definitely. So I think um, before we started chatting, the biggest thing that sprung to my mind is the absolute momentum that Brittany Higgins and Grace Taines 
advocacy has gained in this country, you know, the last few months, and I'm sure you've got lots to say on that. Um, things like that in the media every day is very different to where we were five years ago. So for people who are listening who aren't familiar with what happened um, around the Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, can you just give me the cliff notes? Yeah, yeah. So um, Grace Tame is a, a young woman from Tasmania who actually campaigned to have her voice heard speaking out against her abuser. There was a um, like a gag law that she wasn't able to talk about him or that incident and she overturned the law and has become a very fierce and passionate advocate in that space allowing sexual violence survivors to have a voice and to be able to to share their stories which ultimately you know raises awareness of the issue in the community and society abroad and Brittany Higgins was a, a parliamentary staffer who unfortunately experienced um, sexual assault while in parliament and actually raised that issue wasn't met with a very good response it wasn't very well supported by senior staff or listened to and that essentially not long after grace tame launched the parliamentary inquiry into the culture at parliament house and sexual um violence and sexual harassment as a, a larger issue a major issue in australia essentially does that sum it up yeah for you yeah beautifully yeah and so what i guess what are your thoughts on on everything around the advocacy that those two amazing women have done? I think before those, so I think one, the way that they are able to talk and hold themselves, I guess I'm talking from myself right now, but the fact that they're unapologetically campaigning using their voices you know grace tame's infamous photo looking at scott morrison you know they're they're so i don't want to use the word brazen but fierce and bold and what's the other word well galvanizing but they they're not following those scripts which is generally around silence Mm. and i think that it's actually allowing other survivors or other people in the community to also, I guess, reckon with that and speak up. Um, I just don't think we've seen it in this way before. No, and I, one of the things, so there's there's the big things that go around that. There's the small things as well. So there's the conversation around, you know, there's people talking about now the concept of you'd be pretty if you smiled more. Yes. You know, or that... Um, okay, you feel uncomfortable right now, but don't don't make this a big deal. Just smile, and hopefully he'll just go away. So yes, for me that that's the exciting thing: the fact that yes, there are these women who are they are standing in their own shoes. Yes, start, we can't. You can't just change overnight. They have to change with. I mean, it'd be amazing if we couldn't. If you can work out how, that I'm all all ears for hearing it. But I think it's those, it's the small conversations like, why do I need to smile so you think I look pretty? So it's... Yeah, yeah. You know, conversations I've had where, you know, for a certain amount of time, half my head was shaved and the other half was pink and purple. And somebody saying, oh, well, you can't be a CEO with pink and purple hair. Mm. Why not? It's what's in my head, not what's on my head, you know? So, but this concept of, you know, women have to dress a certain way and 
why? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, you definitely, um, that point, I think I've been reading a lot too about that ultimate patriarchy win is that women still, no matter what we're doing, want to be attractive to men or accepted in that, I'm talking heteronormative, you know, that you're still um, attractive or or fit into that mould and, you know, we all see those terrible headlines around women gaining weight or um, letting themselves go and that real media rhetoric still places a lot of pressure on women to look and behave a certain way even when they're advocating in a sexual violence space you know like really that's probably the main place where you think you don't have to smile um the other thing i think that just read that for um, a second um, sorry go um this there's a photo that's circulating on facebook and i don't know whether it's a real photo or not but it's piers brosnan with his wife and you know his wife has put on weight and you know and um she could have surgery and she could have this and she but he said no she's raised she's grown their children and she he loves her and he you know and he's celebrated because he hasn't asked his wife to change a what we're celebrating him because he hasn't <laughs> left his wife because she's put weight on how yes. is that like and this is people trying to advocate for people to be, you know, to be in their own skin that, oh, well, if Piers Brosnan can love his wife when she's fat, then, you know, then you should feel okay that you've put weight. What? No, we shouldn't be celebrating I someone know. because they haven't left their wife because they've put weight on. <laughs> I know. Oh, my goodness. I haven't seen that, but I can imagine how much praise that would get. It's quite disappointing, isn't it? And I also... I've seen an image recently of a celebrity sharing his wife in a bikini Mm. and she had just had a baby and the caption said, what baby? Like as if, you know, she's looking great. And there was all this rhetoric like, you know, it's just people were annoyed at him, like, you know, more outraged. But I thought this still goes on um, every day. That sort of, you know, the yummy mummies or getting your body back. We see that in our mainstream news sites when yeah. I go on at lunchtime I see it yeah. yeah that's it and you know the health promotion officer in me says that most definitely it's you know it's much healthier for us to not be carrying extra weight from you know when we look at the health impacts of that and you know the comorbidities that go with overweight and obesity then most definitely it's in our best interest to be as fit and healthy and you know optimal weight as possible yes but that's that's our choice to make not that we should be you know this whole yummy mummy thing and um and the covers of all the magazines that show people that have been airbrushed to within an inch of their life and who don't represent what is normal or what that woman looks like in real life and we're still being bombarded with this not now it's not just only at the checkouts like you say it's every time you open your phone yeah Definitely. And I I didn't necessarily want to go down this path, but I feel like I can't help but um, touch on it in this conversation is, you know, the rise of um, injectables and plastic surgery procedures Mm. that are now quite normalised, I guess, in the Western world. I think that's another phenomenon we don't always reflect on or talk about. It's almost just become a norm, like Mm. another normal sort of part of um, different groups of women's lives. But I haven't really heard many conversations about where that come from and why you know and and there's no judgment again women as individual we can do what we like but I guess socially it's that 
aesthetic pressure, isn't it? Mm. And you're right. Like it has become, it has become normal and well normalized. When did that happen? I don't know. I don't know if it's ten years or five years. Um, it seems a little bit overnight for me personally, but I know it's been a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yes, definitely. I know what you mean by that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. um, but on, I wanted to just um, touch too that talking about, I guess, that Grace Tame and, and Brittany mm. Higgins advocacy, they're really, you know, rewriting cultural scripts around how um, we can talk about sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I think there's that real call to action and um, a warning against complacency. So even you mentioned, we mentioned the smiling before, but not if someone apologizes actually not even accepting that if it doesn't fall if action doesn't follow yeah so it's a really powerful time where we're saying statements or apologies this doesn't matter we actually need to see change we yeah. actually need to see overhaul and i think you know young people the way that they now can campaign on social media or share messaging with each other you know the march for justice last year mm. hundreds of thousands of people around the country galvanised to go to that. I think in regards to gender equality and what we're talking about today, it's a really um, big space to watch. Yeah. And another thing um, that I've been keeping track of looking at is, and this is a whole another big topic for another day, but <laughs> the fact now too that young women are growing up in a time very different to even our generations where, you know, sexualised content or pornography, this is another gender equality core yeah. issue, yeah. is, is in their lives from the moment they are very, very young, so mm. early teens or pre-teens. And I've read a lot of articles recently about young women coming out and speaking up about that too, that, you know, they've been sold this idea of sex um, positivity, whatever you want to call yeah, that, and yeah. it's not a conversation about that. But they're saying, but when do I get to say this isn't good for me or this content doesn't make me feel good or, or being with my partner and them expecting that from me or treating me like that isn't good for me as a young woman. So yeah. I also think we're going to see a lot of momentum in that space too, which is really exciting. That is really exciting because I think it is it is scary. Like you're saying um, pornography is so much more accessible for our teens now and, you know, sort of going back to when when I was younger or um you know with the the boys who were in my life they had to well often they had to steal magazines from somebody else and you know and I was talking to somebody about this recently that they knew that there was a place in the bush where they had a cubby and people would leave magazines there and then they you know so things like that as opposed to having it on their phone that's accessible all the time but it's shifted people's perception around what sex is and what sex looks like and what's and to the point that it, people's sexual expectations have changed and how is that impacting how's that impacting our young people how's that impacting our young girls how's that impacting our women yes and i think this point to answer the initial question is exactly why we still need international women's day and focusing on women and girls specific issues i must say i've never heard about that bush method i've really <laughs> heard about um i i heard in some like talks and things you know the paper bag people would go into a store with like come out with a paper bag you know it was very secretive and hidden yeah. whereas now yeah it's much more in your face and i think um 
even with the inquiry I read the other day in an article, the, the FIFO, the, the yeah. mining sites and the sexual harassment inquiry there, a woman had been talking about being on a bus and a, a male having it on their phone. You yeah. know, that to me is just It's mind-blowing, and isn't it? It is, and inescapable. Like, yeah. how do you escape that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, that's amazing. I can't. Can't get my head around that. <laughs> to be honest, that somebody would be watching pornography on the bus. Um, yeah. I know, but that's also another point, Emma. That you know, in WA particularly, in recent events, the news around gender equality, the inquiry into the mining companies is a huge, huge win for yeah. gender equality and the change that will come from that. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, I just want to go all the way back to um, the event that you know. It's, it's like I hope you're editing this so we flow, Emma. <laughs> see how we go (laughs) Um, if we go all the way back to the conversation around um the event that you've got on the 8th with senator dorinda cox how can people attend that can people attend that is it yeah is it open to the public yeah if yes definitely if you listen to this and you decide that's something you want to come along to please send an email to info at cwsw .org.au and you will be sent a Teams link. So it's 3pm Western Standard Time to 4pm and the Centre's Director of Domestic Family and Sexual Violence, Dr Alison Evans, who is a fantastic specialist, Mm -hmm. um, content knowledge, will be interviewing Dorinda. So it's going to be a great session. Yeah. So Alison was um, sort of a guest on the podcast this time last year. So she was a speaker at an event and we used that for the podcast episode that we went out around International Women's Day last year. So she's just absolutely amazing. So I can only imagine that having Alison interviewing Senator Dorinda Cox, it, it's going to be fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to actually being there, well, online to be there. <laughs> so can you talk to me about how you see women's roles in society change? Look, this is a huge question. It's quite a philosophical question, I must say, too, Emma, because, you know, it's um, quite big. But I, I think, as we mentioned before, I think there's still that, in some spaces, that stereotype around caring, nurturing, self-sacrificing, smiling, perhaps, and this is just me thinking now in this podcast, but the fact that we're seeing so much social change and momentum that perhaps workplaces, even around um, gender equality, we won't expect women to behave in a certain way if that's not them. So if we have a woman, I know you talked about that masculine feminine sort of notions before, but I even read somewhere, I think it might've been on the white ribbon website about buying gifts at work, Christmas parties or birthdays. Women will usually do that. Yeah. If you're a woman and you're in a role and you actually don't want to participate in any of that, you hate birthdays, you hate buying gifts. I hope as a society, we start to let women demonstrate different personality traits and behaviours without even branding them as bossy or aggressive, you know, if they're assertive, because that's another really big thing. And I know for me, even if I'm getting passionate and raising my voice, I could drive home and be really sort of worried thinking, did I seem like I was yelling? Whereas my partner, he actually, yeah, he would hear him on the phone. He is actually yelling and he wouldn't worry about it. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if that answers your question, but for me, I think as we start to 
we talked about those structural bigger levels, but I guess from day to day behaviours and expectations and stereotypes, I hope that would create momentous change. And even in the news two days ago, Qantas um, looking at scrapping the makeup and heels for their flight attendants, mm. you know, in 2022, there still is an expectation that women to be groomed have to look a certain way. Yeah. So this is a lot of pressure to carry, you know, and I think it impacts women and girls substantially without them even knowing. And I look, I don't actually know whether or not this is still a thing, but going back, okay, I'm going to go back to probably the 90s, but just, uh, but in order to be, in order to be a flight attendant, you had to, you had to look a certain way. So that involved, you had to weigh a certain amount, your hair, Mm -hmm. like your makeup had to look like this, your hair had to look like this. Yeah. Like you say, you had to wear these, these stockings, these um, shoes, these heels, the fact that we're expecting flight attendants to, I was actually just having a conversation at lunchtime about some of the flights that we've had and some of the awful turbulence and the experiences and trying to claw their way up a plane wearing a pair of high heels. Is that practical? (laughs) If we need to to leave this plane quickly, I need them in running shoes, you know. (laughs) I don't want them having to worry about high heels. So... um, Yes, I think, you know, maybe we can let go of the aesthetic and work on can this woman actually get from one end of the plane to the other and can she get the emergency evacuation chute open? If she can, I don't care what she looks like. Um, Yeah, I know. It it is. It's just, it's baffling to think about. My mum actually had a hair salon and I remember she had a lot of... um, air hostesses coming because I would get vouchers to maintain their look and I thought it was the best thing ever you know I was young and not aware of these sorts of things and now I look back and think yeah it was not that long ago um but on that question Emma I think I found some stats on community attitudes which Mm. came from Anne Rose that might be useful around how Australians view gender equality or what some of the the common attitudes are because if we're changing, you know, we expect community attitudes to be changing. So this was from, I'm pretty sure 2021. I can confirm that for you, but most Australians do have accurate knowledge of violence against women and do not endorse this violence. Um, Most Australians support gender equality and are more likely to support gender equality in 2017 than they were in 2013 and 2009. Um, Australians are more likely to understand that violence against women involves more than just physical violence in 2017 than they were in 2013 and 19. And if confronted by a male friend verbally abusing his female partner, most respondents say they would be bothered. 98% said that would act 70% and would feel they would have to the support of all or most of their friends if they did act 69%. So there's some really positive results coming mm. out around the last few years attitudes changing in Australia. There were a couple of concerning points though that I really wanted to share. Um, Before you go to the concerning points, I promise I'll come yeah. back to the concerning points. I'm even going to write it down so I remember to. Um, but yeah. I'm wondering, do you think that what we're so do you think what we're seeing marries with those stats? So we're hearing that um, you know a high percentage of people understand that violence against women is more than just physical violence, 
And so I think there's a difference between knowing it intellectually and knowing it when it's actually happening. So definitely, I, I guess what, what I'm seeing is people going, oh, yeah, I know that family and domestic violence isn't just physical abuse. It's also emotional, financial, social, you know, all of the other um, aspects of abuse. And yet when, you know, I had a conversation with somebody and said, you know that that's actually family and domestic violence, don't you? You understand that him not letting you sit in a room with a heater on in the middle of winter because you're working at home and he doesn't like you working at home, you know that that's actually a form of control. And yes, yeah, that kind of, and she's going, oh, no, no, it's not because he's, you know, okay, so you're a well-educated person and yet you know, you know the different elements of family and domestic violence, but you can't actually see it when you're in it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's there'd be a number of complexities and nuances and there's quite a big report so have a look at it i recommend others mm. to look at it because in the i guess a um concerning points some of mm. them might also contradict those points that we are changing in some areas but other areas that are a part of those bigger areas aren't changing or there's some concerning attitudes so exactly what you're saying i think it's more complex and nuanced than that and i think there's still a lot of education to be done in Australia around um, yeah, what, what abuse is and how to prevent it. And we even at the centre in partnership with Stopping Family Violence have the Preventing Violence Together program that is going to be doing a lot of that core preventative work in this state because it definitely is, is a gap and much needed. Mm. Um, so what were some of those concerning points that they raised? Yes, so... Um, there continues to be a decline in the number of Australians who understand that men are more likely than women to perpetrate domestic violence. So I guess this is a, probably something you're aware of too, Emma, that we can talk about family and domestic violence, but perhaps the gendered nature of it isn't understood. So when I've done some, you know, community talks, there's always some people who say, what about services for men or what about men? They're not understanding the core stats that mm. it is it is like predominantly men perpetrating violence against, against women, women and their intimate partners so that's where work needs to be done um you said this before a concerning proportion of australians believe that gender inequality is exaggerated or no longer a problem um among attitudes condoning violence against women the highest level of agreement was with the idea that women use claims of violence to gain tactical advantage in their relationships with men. And I'm sure you've heard that, you know, around different spaces as well, that there's this notion of, of making things up to gain something, which yeah. we know is not true because it's so hard to disclose or report. Um one in five Australians would not be bothered if a male friend told a sexist joke about a woman. So these sorts of yeah. um, core behaviours are the ones that need challenging. And this was the biggest one I wanted to share, but I got off track and got too many. <laughs> one in five Australians believe domestic violence is a normal reaction to stress and that sometimes a woman can make a man so angry he hits her without meaning to. Just let that sink in for a minute. So that's 20% yes. of our population believe that you know, sometimes men just lose their temper. And, you know, if women, if they could keep themselves out of it and they could manage to not upset their husband or not upset their man, well, then he wouldn't be too upset and he wouldn't hit her. Yeah. 
20% so of our population. This is why, yeah. So again, what that's why it's so important for International Women's Day and the gender equality focus. Mm. And, you know, I was going to come back and say, you know, you mentioned about the, well, what about men? And it's always the question that we get when we talk about we're doing something for International Women's Day. When's International Men's Day? Well, it's actually Saturday the 19th of November. So there is an International Men's <coughs> Day. And um, so if you are listening to this and you think, well, we need to do something for International Men's Day, feel free to jump on and Google International <laughs> Men's Day. There is one. Uh, and, yeah. Um, and... I'm still blown away by the one in five people think that this is normal for men to lose their temper and, you know, they can't help it. And I'm, as the mother of a boy, or he's a teen boy now, that's not okay that people think so little of men to think that they don't have control over that. Mm, mm. Yeah. And we had an... I probably shouldn't share this, but oh well. <laughs> I may cut it up. It's your um, podcast, Emma. You can it. share what you like. <laughs> we, ha- we had an incident with my children's school and girls aren't, aware, aren't allowed to wear leggings after they get to a certain age in the school because it will be too distracting for the boys. Is this? I was going to ask you, is it because of the focus on their backside in the leggings, like the yeah. tightness? Oh, yes. my goodness. That's it. That's exactly right. And yet... The school shorts are actually, they're incredibly short and you can see all of their legs. Um, but, you know, the fact that girls aren't, aware to, aren't allowed to wear leggings because um, particularly, and this was the wording, particularly as girls start to develop, I'm not sure what they're Goodness. developing in their leggings, to be fair, but particularly as girls start to develop, it's too distracting for the boys. Goodness. This was 2021, so it was last year that this this came around and you think you know firstly as the mother of two girls that's not okay and as the mother of a yeah. boy that's not okay don't you put that on him that he can't mm. he can't control himself like that mm. that's not okay and it's this same I guess I'm having this same kind of reaction hearing that one in five people believe that men can't control themselves mm. Mm. and I think that um, point for me too is that there was that sort of blame on the woman's behaviour. So, you know, yeah, we yes, as that, women are doing definitely. something. There's two parts to it, yes. isn't it? That yeah. men can't control, but also, you know, your partner's doing something so unbelievably stressful yeah. that there's almost no other, I don't know how, how others would interpret, but to me it's that sort of provocation yeah. factor. Yeah. again and, um, and that was my initial uniform. reaction that was my initial reaction to hear all oh, right so it's her fault that he hit her because she did something that led to that like so yeah. you know, I got angry hearing that and then I sat for a minute and went hang on a minute not only that but they're saying that men don't have the ability to to control themselves neither of those arguments are okay I know I know and this is why community attitudes, you know, we see, um, I don't know if you see them, but on mainstream TV, there's the um, national sort of ads now around respect and behaviours. And we're seeing campaigns and initiatives, you know, really targeted to mm. change community attitudes, because I think that's really where it's at around equality. You know, the way mum and dad model their relationship in front of kids or the way girls are treated playing footy, you know, are yeah. they heroes and are they champions if they kick six goals compared to their older brother? So even though we're talking, talking about very specific topics today I think it really is about 
challenging all those behaviours in all of the context of our communities. Mm. And your school example is really good because I read the other day about a school in Perth that is allowing um, girls not to wear dresses anymore and really championing that. So there's almost um, some people who just haven't got the message yet, have they? They haven't listened to this podcast or anything. Oh, I mean, I'm fairly sure that the um, response that I wrote <laughs> outlined some of my concerns. <laughs> and actually, one of the other things that you brought up before was around the idea that, you know, it's the woman in the officer's role to go and buy the birthday cakes. You know, it's, that's her. And it's that, and I was speaking to a colleague who worked in um, previously predominantly in oil and gas. So she was one of the very few women in the office space. And so the caretaking roles fell to her, despite the fact that's not her personality at all. No, it was her job. And they were expecting her to bake cupcakes for people's birthdays. And they were, <laughs> you know, I know. <laughs> and, but because she was the woman, then of course that would go to her. And, you know, that's really quite recently. So I think we need to be, we do need to be challenging that and go, well, you know what, Dave can stop off at the cheesecake shop just as well as Jill can. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you can think of just so many examples, you know, in families, perhaps um, the female, the woman is also expected to sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but perform duties for the in-laws, you know, like, do you know, as well as her own family, but then in friends and extended family. But if they come to stay, you know, it's on her to make them feel welcome or cook for them. I think it's so... You could break it down to so many different parts. Yeah, that's it. Like at Christmas, it's it's generally the wife's job to go and buy. You know, there's always jokes that go around that say only 12 more hours before dad finds out what's underneath the Christmas tree. Um, I know. <laughs> and, and similar things about, well, it often falls to the wife to buy the in-laws Christmas presents or birthday presents and those kinds of things, which if, if you love buying gifts, go for it. It's just that it's about the expectation and how can we remove the expectation and turn it into a shared role and a conversation around who's going to pick up the gift for grandma this week or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, well, I actually had a question for you. I hope you don't mind, Emma. I'm a bit cheeky, but obviously women's community-based health centres are Mm -hmm. a huge part of gender equality and Mm -hmm. were created and born out of the the need for women to have their own space, especially vulnerable women. Like... I guess I wanted to hear from your perspective um, what what it means at your workplace and like what does gender equality kind of mean for you in that space today in 2022, kind of realising we're not in 1970, but is yeah. it the same? Has it changed? I've been with this organisation for 19 years and it's changed. Wow. Yeah, a long t- well, 19 years in August, so, you know, I'm still counting it. Um, so it's been a long time and... It has changed. It has changed from, you know, when we first started, we were, we didn't have any men come into the space at all. Uh, now, mm-hmm. now we work to try, so we have one male therapist now, um, because while we are still a service for, um, for women by women, we also recognise that there are spaces to have to, I guess, for men to be a part of modelling positive relationships and to, mm-hmm. um, to be a part of that as well. But there is still a need for women to have safe spaces. There's still a need for women mm-hmm. to have a space where this is just for them. And they know that mm-hmm. they know that they can walk in and they know that this space mm-hmm. it's available for them. And mm-hmm. I think I think when women are holding you know, we talked about that mental load before, we hold 
everything for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's so important to know that there are spaces out there where you can come in and we'll hold you. Oh, that makes me feel so nice hearing that, that wraparound support. I love yeah. hearing about from that space. Like you can walk in, not really know what you're after, just feel upset and frazzled or unwell and you're going to have someone who wants to respond to that yeah. need. That's it. And that's, you know, that's kind of a, a core value under it, that there are so many, you, you ring up for services. No, we can't help you. Put the phone down. Nope, sorry, we're not the right person. Put the phone down. Now we know that we can't be everything for everyone but we won't be another link in a no chain. So if you call up and we can't support you for whatever it is that you're looking for, we'll find out who can and then we'll, we'll mm-hmm. guide you into that because sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes women need somebody who can actually hold their hand and help them along that journey mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're often the ones doing that for everybody else. So that's, that's kind of where I see our job is to, to be doing it for the women. That is so lovely said and I, I love hearing that. Do you find too that the women that come to your service still very much want that space for them as well? Like they're very appreciative to have this gendered women-only space yeah. that's for their needs? Most definitely, yeah. And, you know, it's often what we hear most often on our on our evaluations is I felt like I, I feel like I finally got somewhere for me. And, mm. you know, because... Everything is often around our children or our husband and, you know, so I've found space for them. I've made sure they're okay. I've done all of this and now finally there's something for me as well. So it's really Mm. validating for women to know that there is actually somebody out there where there is a space for you. Mm. I love that. And I love seeing the women's health um, groups and courses because they're so diverse. And yeah. I just think they're giving so many different things to women, which again, 50, 60 years ago, you know, you wouldn't have said, I'm going off to a macrame making workshop on Friday night, you know, like it's, <laughs> we've kind of refocused the priority for self-care and things. Yeah. And, and that's really interesting. I think that's probably one of the big changes that I've seen in the 18 and a half, 19 years that I've been with the women's health. When I first started, it was very much around health service. So it was very much around making sure that women had access to pap smears and making sure that we were increasing awareness around breast health and around pap smear, the importance of pap smears and cervical cancer and um, yep. those kinds of health promotion messages. And they're, they're still really important, but I think that we've, we've done a lot to move towards that. Now we're looking at how can we actually support individual women? And, you know, we don't, one of our core services isn't family and domestic violence. And yet most of our clients have experienced family and domestic violence or childhood sexual abuse or, um, some, you know, some sort of sexual violence. But again, they're seeing that as normal. So because mm. that's, it's generational. And so what mm. we're doing is working with them to say, well, actually, how can we, how can we break this so that your daughters don't see this as normal? Mm. And one of the ways that we do that as ridiculous as it sounds, is actually through macrame sessions or whatever it is. Oh, I, I made that up on yeah. the spot. I didn't know you actually did that. We do actually have one coming up, yeah. Um, but we do it because when you get women in a room, you know there's a lovely saying when women circle, great things happen. When you get women mm. in a room and you can get people talking, they get to share their experiences and they get to create these social networks. And those social networks are incredibly powerful in order to allow mm. women the space to actually make change. 
Mm, no, I I totally agree with that. And I think more so now than ever after the pandemic, we realise that, don't mm. we, that it takes we a need groups and we don't of have people. One. Yeah. yeah. I know I actually, for the centre recently, we had the service directory project, which mm. has all the different services on there. But one of the biggest things I was talking to lived experience women and they love groups. They just said, we wish there was more groups, the yeah. more funded groups ongoing because they want to talk to others with similar experiences. Yeah. And, and that's one of the biggest components to their, their healing journey. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, well, before we wrap up for today, did you have any other thoughts or comments or anything you would like to share? Um, thank you so much for having me, Emma. It's been great to talk about um, many of the topics within the main topic of gender equality today. But I just wanted to finish um, yeah, by saying that gender equality underpins all the work that we do at the centre, um, the three areas, family and domestic violence, sexual violence and um, women's community-based health. And I have a nice little statement that I think just summarises um, the meaning and purpose behind that from the centre, and that is, Gender equality signifies equal respect, rights and opportunities for everyone, regardless of their gender identity. Gender equality is a human right that is needed across all areas of society. We work to progress gender equality through our focus areas of violence against women and their children, sexual violence and health and wellbeing, and across the areas of leadership work and economic security. So I think for me, the fact gender equality is a human right that is needed across all areas is that driving That's the crux factor. of it, isn't it? Yeah, beautiful. And I actually think that's probably a really great place to end um, because, yeah, I do think that sums it up really. Really, we could have just done this whole thing in two minutes. You could have just shared that. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing. And I know none of my conversations ever go in a straight line. So I love that you came on the journey with me. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of A Hidden World of Women, a podcast brought to you by Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. For more information on the services we offer, head to whws.org.au or Women's Health and Wellbeing Services on YouTube and social media. Looking forward to the next episode where we uncover the hidden world of women.